Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We welcome all of you again for Noel Rubini. There are any number of topics to spend a long conversation with Professor Rubini at NYU Stern School and, of course, NorielToday.com. But his comments the last time he appeared with us on Bitcoin, those comments went worldwide. We get an update, what, $10,000 higher on Bitcoin. Noel, let's just start with the simple microeconomics, the supply, the demand. Why is Bitcoin surging? Uh, my view is surging because there is a massive amount of manipulation. There are pump and dump schemes, there is spoofing, there is wash trading, there is front running, there is the issuance by tether of a fiat currency, not backed by much, that is used to manipulate uh, the price of Bitcoin. I think it's a bubble. Uh, fundamentally, Bitcoin is not a currency, it's not a unit of account, it's not a scalable means of payment, it's not a stable store of value. Not even uh, Bitcoin conferences accepted as a means of payment because the price volatility implies right. your profit margin can be wiped out. <clears throat> and it's not even a single numerator. You know, the Flintstones had a better monetary system than Bitcoin because uh, they had the shells <clears throat> instead of having right. a different token for different purchase of goods and services. So these are not currencies. Calling them cryptocurrencies is a misnomer. Okay, They're not even assets. Noel, I want to get to the heart of it, and I'm going to go to Raphael Auer's path-breaking work with Benoit Carre at the Bank of International Settlements. The transaction costs of Bitcoin in retail transactions preclude its use. So do you look at Tesla as a one-off and that Bitcoin just simply will never be used at retail because the transaction costs are so much higher than normal currency? Well, the transaction costs are huge, but the technology proof of work doesn't allow more than five transactions per second. The Visa network allows you 24,000 transactions per second. So it's not a scalable means of payment, leaving aside the fact that transaction costs are so high, it's never going to be used for goods and services. It's just used for speculation and buying other cryptocurrencies. So it's a self-serving system. But it's not something that's going to be used as a scalable means of payment for goods and services ever. Noriel, you mentioned the volume of transactions. What about just a smaller volume but in larger size? Meaning what? Meaning if you could transact in large sums of money and move cash through Bitcoin from one country to another in large numbers. So not the volume of individual transactions, but let's say you could move a billion from point A to point B with Bitcoin. Well, you know, even uh, Steve Mnuchin said that we cannot have crypto and Bitcoin becoming the next Swiss bank account being used by human traffickers, terrorists, tax evaders as a way of sheltering their wealth and moving across borders. Right now, across borders, there are slow movements of transactions because there is a KYC, there's ML, there's compliance. That's why it's hard to move money from one country to another. That's why there are capital controls. So if you have a system that is illegal that allows you to transfer money instantaneously from a country to another one without any control, of course, that something is going to be used by criminals or terrorists or human traffickers or tax evaders. But no system, no country is going to allow that. There has been a crackdown of the G20 on those types of offshore financial centers. There will be a similar crackdown against the total lack of MEL and KYC in anything is crypto. 
So, Professor, what do you make of the increased institutional buying that we've seen more recently? Well, you know, I, I think that uh, you have to ask yourself, is this as an asset? It's not a currency. It's not even an asset. Usually stocks, bonds, loans, uh, real estate give you some income, dividend, coupon, interest or rent. Uh, some other assets like residential real estate give you use housing services. Gold doesn't have any income, but there's a use in industry as utility, as jewelry, and as a past monetary use as a store of value. You look at Bitcoin, it doesn't have any income, it doesn't have any use, it doesn't have any utility. So it's a pure speculative self-fulfilling bubble on a price appreciation. It's like tulip mania. But in case of tulip mania, at least tulips had some utility. Even today, people love flowers. In this case, you have an asset that is not an asset because it doesn't have any feature of an asset. It doesn't have any feature of a currency. So it's just a self-fulfilling bubble. That's what it is. It's an intrinsic value zero. And actually, given it's hogged so much energy for producing it more than Argentina, if you had a pure carbon tax, the value would be negative, not even zero. Well, some people would argue, uh, Nuriel, that the idea of so much money flooding the financial system, that there is value in being able to put it somewhere and not lose money, that basically not being charged a negative yield is value in and of itself in this NERP, uh, in this negative interest rate uh, policy world that we're living in. If this is a bubble, can it burst, given where we are with the liquidity spigots, without many other parts of financial markets also suffering big blows? Well, you know, if it's a hedge against inflation, the basement of fiat currencies or a collapse of the dollar, you would see a spike in tips in the price of gold in inflation expectation. Yeah, eventually this monetary policy may lead us to those kind of outcomes, but the price of other assets will be sharply increasing. Gold went up 50% in the last two years, has now corrected a little bit. Why would uh, Bitcoin go from 5,000 earlier last year to something like 50,000, 10 times higher, just because there's a hedge against some tail risk of that sort? Other assets will be pricing in. So that's not the explanation of the rise in Bitcoin prices. It's price manipulation of one sort or another. And Bitcoin is not even a hedge against tail risk. During the February-March episode last year, when you had a collapse in U.S. and global equity of 30, 40 percent, Bitcoin went down by 50 percent and other cryptocurrency went down by 60 percent. So when there is risk off, they're not even hedge against those tail risks. So they don't have any hedging purpose of that sort either. You say there's price manipulation. Who's doing the manip manipulating? I will get my words out. Manipulating. Well, there have been tons of articles showing that there are these pump and dump uh, schemes that are all over Telegram, groups that are essentially pumping and dumping the price of it. We know that Tether issuance is literally a billion dollars every other day out of nowhere. No one has been verifying the account of Tether and it's being used essentially to buy Bitcoin and it's not backed by anything. And there is a whole bunch of wash trading or spoofing. There are exchanges that are front running their own clients. It's all over the map. I mean, stuff that yeah. is just should be investigated and is being investigated. There are a whole bunch of investigation by the DOJ, CFTC, the New York Attorney General Office of Tether and Bitfinex that are undergoing right now. Nora, what should governments do? I mean, there's got to be a point where in the United Kingdom, the city, the Chancellor of the Exchequer or some FSA body steps in, same in the United States and same in other nations as well. With your government experience with the Clinton administration, how can governments be constructive with this surge in Bitcoin? Well, you have to enforce anti-money laundering and know your customer KYC rules. That's the first thing. Uh, there was a proposal by the Trump administration to make sure that unhosted wallets 
I have to reveal who's behind them. That rule has not yet gone into effect. There are lots of things you can do. There could be investigation of whether there is price manipulation. There are investigations right now about Tether and Bitfinex. Those things have to continue because this is a bubble and eventually it's reaching now a market value crypto of $1.4 trillion. And when there's going to be a bloodbath, like in 2018, when the price of Bitcoin went initially from 1,000 to 20 and then collapsed from 20 down to three, that at, time, at that time, the market value was very small, a couple hundred billion dollars. Right now, is a, a multiple of that. So the consequences and the losses mm-hmm. for people are going to be so much severe for institutions and for retail suckers of one sort or another. Noriel, comment, please. And of course, and we thanks all of you out on Twitter and your emails watching Professor Rubini here on television and radio. As well. Noriel, people are transfixed by this debate. Explain to us not the thermodynamics, but the proof of work of electricity and its artificiality. How do you see the electrical consumption to make this machine go? Well, Bitcoin alone, it uses the energy of a medium-sized country like Argentina, because instead of having, like in any legacy financial system, a few trusted uh, individuals or institutions that are validating transactions to make sure there is no double spend, a bunch of banks. Now you have uh, literally hundreds of thousands of got miners who have to do a stupid cryptographic exercise so that one of them wins the task of verifying those transactions and they're put on a ledger in hundreds of thousands of other computers. It's the most inefficient way of essentially verifying transactions. It doesn't make any sense. And by the way, it's not decentralized either because 70% of all the mining of crypto or Bitcoin is being done by five or six oligopolis firms that are based where? In Russia, Belarus, and China. There are countries that have no rule of law. And we have a national security problem right now if we're relying on a bunch of miners in countries that are our strategic rivals, in which there is no rule of law to verify those transactions. So people talk about decentralization is not a decentralized system. You have centralization of mining, the centralization of exchanges, where 99% of all transactions are occurring, the centralization of developers, and centralization of wealth. The Gini coefficient for Bitcoin is worse than the one of North Korea, where Kim Jong-un and his family and cronies own the entire country. It's 0.86, while in Korea it's 0.84. It's just a total lie that this is a decentralized system. It's centralized where a bunch of insiders and whales and others are controlling the entire system and they're manipulating it. In, in states in which there is no rule of law. It's just pathetic. Professor, hopefully next time you come back, you can tell us what you really think about Bitcoin. <laughs> professor, it's good to see you. Nuria Rabini, Professor of Economics at NYU Stern School of Business. Right now on oil, definitive is Paul Sankey. Long ago and far away at Deutsche Bank, there was absolute definitive sell-side research, like a Bible you read is Siminski and Sankey on the global supply, the global demand of oil. We're thrilled that Paul Sankey could join us uh, from Sankey Research uh, this morning. Paul, with the gyrations that we see in the Midwest of the United States, in Texas, Permian Basin, et cetera, can we get out of the assumption of range-bound oil? Well, look, these, these are not gyrations. I mean, this situation to me is, is very reminiscent of Hurricane Katrina, where if you recall on the Monday after Katrina, there was sort of an attitude that uh, this hasn't been that big a deal. And then over the course of the following week, it suddenly you know, emerged as a, as a horrendous disaster. 
So gyrations, and this I've observed this morning, Tom, people don't realize how bad the situation is. I mean, you've got, like, as you mentioned, your previous guest mentioned, you've got basically full-scale blackouts in Mexico, but you've also lost here the, the biggest outage in the history of U.S. oil and gas. I mean, this thing is we have never seen a loss of this scale at a time when, uh, you know, you're in midwinter. So basically, we think you've lost about 3 million barrels a day of oil. We think you've lost about 10 BCF of gas at least. And we're down at least 3 million barrels a day in refining. You know, all of these, for example, in refining mm-hmm. of the base of about 16 million barrels a day with inventories not that high. So this is an energy crisis. And, you know, yeah, gyrations, you know, you're seeing Brent at 64 here, the obvious uh, price reaction would be, firstly, obviously, if you lose U.S. Texas oil, you'd be expecting Brent to go up, and it is. And yeah, well, what is do- your price target? I mean, give us visibility on price right now. Well, we've been talking a lot about the dollar, so we think you can get to 80 this year uh, based on the dollar. Now, that obviously, if the dollar strengthens a lot, that, that causes a dud. But essentially, oil should be around 65, 70 just on the dollar at 90 on the DXY. You know, if we break down to 80 uh, and below, then you could you could easily see oil at 80. Um, and, you know, therefore, there's quite a bit of upside at this point, which has been that was prior to this outage. So, uh, you know, we'll see how this thing plays out. But I think it's going to take a long time to sort this problem out. Well, Paul, can you talk about the way forward? In other words, how much federal interference has to be waged here, given the fact that to upgrade Texas's infrastructure to be more weatherproof would cost trillions of dollars. And we're looking at a state that doesn't insure against potential outages the way that places in the Northeast do. How do you see the federal government getting involved? Well, so far, the only comments been from uh, AOC. You know, we haven't really seen much from the president, for example. Uh, I mean, I know he's following a, a post-Trump, you know, no Twitter kind of approach. But, uh, yeah, it's a major problem for the Texans, and they're going to have to completely rethink. This is, this is really existential in terms of how much wind and how much solar you can have in a system, uh, given that, you know, you were caught really badly short. What happens if you lose natural gas? And, you know, to be honest, people hadn't really thought what happens if there's a major nat gas outage at a time when there's no wind and solar? And the answer probably is, well, where are your nukes or where's your coal fire? Hold on a second, Paul. But this is really important because yesterday we had a Texas regulator come on and say that the fault really was prioritizing green energy, that the wind turbines and some of the other natural resources that went offline were part of the big culprits behind this outage. If we look at data as reported by Bloomberg, it's not really the case that actually it's very much across the board and that accounts for a much smaller proportion of the total energy output. So can you give us some perspective on how much the sort of shift to green energy really is behind this versus something much broader and more existential, as you say? Yeah, I mean, look, it's broader. That's exactly my point. Thank you for making that. No, I mean, you've, you've had a failure of the natural gas system. You've had a nuclear power, uh, a very large, 1,200 megawatt uh, nuclear power plant has gone down. And obviously, this is you know somewhat unprecedented weather. I think it's a 60-year 60, 60 event since we've seen something like this in Texas. So all of the all of the above, absolutely. And for one side, you know, for exactly as you highlight, for one side to say it's wind's fault, and for the other side to sort of say, you know, this shows you that you didn't invest enough in the grid, is the kind of idiocy that we see around, uh, you know, the whole uh, energy transition debate. The thing that bugs me the most is people who are trying to get us off natural gas. You know, the idea that natural gas is an enemy because it's a fossil fuel is really flawed. And, you know, ultimately, all of us agree that basically we should be building nuclear if we really want to be 
uh, emissions-free because that's by far the best emissions-free option. Paul, a couple of different conversations happening here, and I'm trying to reconcile them. You've got this $80 price target, or at least an $80 call that you're looking for oil prices to gravitate towards. Then we're talking about a problem right now that could be fixed in a couple of weeks as we get into spring. So, Paul, can you reconcile the two things for me? Yeah, I mean, the demand growth that we expect to see uh, is going to be about 3 million barrels a day into summer. Uh, you're about 5 million barrels a day versus last year in OPEC, with another million coming off from Saudi. Uh, so that's that leaves you about 3 million. Uh, at the same time, we've been drawing inventories before this crisis at about 2 million a day globally. So basically, the market is, is pretty much tight by summer. And that gets you. And, and that's, by the way, I mean, I'm sure you guys, you know, are, are pretty jazzed up about the potential for a major pent up demand situation to emerge here. I think all of us, you know, are desperate to fly on a plane and uh, yeah, and do whatever Tom does in, in the summer vacations. But I'm sure it involves yeah. travel. And, um, <laughs> you know, so the point is, yeah, count me it, out, Paul. <laughs> the point is that you're going to see a significant um, upsurge in demand. It's almost guaranteed. This is always, you know. Energy-wise, this is a, a very strong point, obviously, for winter fuels, so obviously natural gas, uh, heating oil. Propane, by the way, is pretty much approaching crisis levels as well. The line that we've had before this crisis was there's no propane west of the Mississippi. So my point is that you're in an energy crisis, and I don't even see it as the top headline uh, you know, in, in the various media outlets that I follow, including Bloomberg. Bloomberg always does a great job, by the way, on Thanks, energy. Thanks, Paul. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for clarifying no, that. Just to jump well, in, Paul, more, just quickly. Say, some, of the more, some of the more populist outlets uh, don't seem to realize that you've got an energy crisis unfolding yeah. right there, a la Katrina. Paul, final question from me, sir. There is a difference between a rebound in crude prices and the start of a commodity super cycle. And I think that's been the big conversation amongst many people in this industry in the last couple of weeks. This was Andy Hall course, famed oil trader of the previous cycle, the last super cycle, and he said the following in the FT, the oil and gas industry is in terminal decline. Perhaps this dead cat can bounce a few more times, but would that be a super cycle? What's your take on that, Paul? <laughs> well, yeah, I used to, I used to meet Andy in a, in a bar up on the upper west side. Here we go. Piano player, and uh, he's obviously a brilliant man. Always bullish, actually. I'm very interested to hear him not so bullish. Yeah, my concern is obviously it's a it's a consensus call. There's going to be a super cycle. You know, the world and his wife is saying, yeah, you know, everything adds up here to a super cycle. Having said that, we are bullish on oil demand over the next five years. You know, the, the, the whole impact of EVs, which is so heavily discounted by the market, overvalued by the market, is going to take a lot longer to really have an impact. And it really comes down to us still being at 95, 96 million barrels a day of oil demand with effectively no jet fuel demand in the U.S. at, uh, you know, at a discretionary basis. So you can easily get three to four million barrels a day of extra jet fuel demand here, which takes you way back up to the 100 million barrel a day market. And then you're really questioning, can the supply side meet that? As you know, the key questions, one of them is going to be, is the U.S. EMP industry going to actually show capital discipline and generate returns this time? Yeah. That's what's exciting to me. I think they will. And yesterday we had Devon announce a variable dividend uh, very early in its announcement of that policy. So essentially now Devon Energy is paying a standard dividend and then a variable dividend depending on the oil price. And they came in with a 19 cent boost for their dividend just based on $45 oil in Q4. That's it, that's a very good leadership role from, from Devon to what this industry should be doing, which is paying out heavily cash to shareholders to pay them for the ESG pain of owning oil. I'm far more interested in how drinks went with Andy on the Upper West Side. Was this 2007? 
Yeah. He dresses like um, Steve Jobs, right? So he's a mysterious figure. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the naked painting of him and his wife, but um, I've seen him naked. <laughs> but this is okay. taking a real interesting Wait, turn. Family <laughs> 40 Eastern. <laughs> we're going to catch up, Paul. Later then, we're out of time. <laughs> Paul, good to see you, mate. Paul Sankey of Sankey Research. Thank you. Michael Gapin joins some Barclays right now. Michael, does this kind of data solidify a Barclays call for buoyant economic growth? It certainly does help. Uh, at least we're, we're looking for growth to be very solid this year. And I, I think what this tells you is when fiscal stimulus or fiscal aid, I think is the better word, arrives to, to household balance sheets, it does get turned around fairly quickly and, and materializes in, in economic activity. So this is largely, we think, attributable to the 900 plus billion aid package that was passed at the end of, of last year. We suspect we will be getting around a 1.4, $1.5 trillion aid package by the middle to the end of, of March. So I think this means we should see a, a pretty rapid acceleration in, in demand and household spending as we move into the into the second quarter, which could be continued if vaccinations continue apace and mobility gradually recovers over time. So yes, Tom, it does, I think, confirm mm -hmm. our expectations about growth for this year, can at least initially. Obviously, there's 11 more months to go. Well, Michael, can you connect retail sales and sort of a one-month pop after passing this uh, stimulus plan to longer-term growth? How neat is that line? Uh, I wouldn't say it's it's entirely uh, neat, but and so there are certainly a, a list of things that have to happen, uh, including vaccinations and getting on top of the pandemic and perhaps turning to an economic recovery package uh, later this year. But but I think it, it it does show you that when households have resources to spend, they ultimately will. So I, I think this does also address the question of excess saving on household balance sheets and what's going to happen to that excess saving if we can gradually normalize activity. There's one school of thought that says it's wealth, it's, it's not really going to support consumption all that much, the wealth yeah. effect is diminished. Our view is that we think a lot of it is, is pent-up demand or at least deferred consumption that's likely to come back and support activity. Just give you an update briefly on this price action. The move didn't hold, it didn't stick. We faked just a little bit, 131.41 on 10s, pushed 133 about five, 10 minutes ago on the dollar index, 1991, just off the highs of the session of 1994. Michael, we're talking about retail sales here, but maybe we should pay a little bit more attention to PPI. Factory gate prices are starting to push up. We're starting to see this in China as well. And I'm trying to understand, you've got this commodity boom, you've got these supply chain issues, PPI starting to bleed higher. How do you take the read on PPI at to CPI, Michael? How consistent is that read across? Well, I think, first of all, we, we should note this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. You mentioned China. Across the globe, the PMI data in January said prices paid. The input prices are moving, are moving higher. Now, this, we, we think on net this affects the emerging market, say, central bank policy position much more because they're much more export oriented. They're, they have a heavier focus on goods production. In the, in the U.S. and in, in Europe and most of the developed world, we're still more of a services oriented uh, economy. So how does it pass through to CPI? Probably further buoyancy in, in goods prices. Now, services really take the... Uh, the, the weight off of that. And, and so we think buoyant, 
good goods prices are still offset by disinflation and in, in shelter or in, in services, at least for much of, of this year. So I think there will be a pass through. I don't think it's going to affect, say, the, the Fed's view on, on how policy should be set. But it is kind of moving the needle a bit on central banks like in Brazil and South Africa, thinking about maybe we need to delay or maybe we delay further cuts or maybe we need to, to move to a tighter policy stance. So it's a global phenomenon right now. We don't think it affects the developed market world as much as the emerging market. Is it more than just base effects, though, Michael? <clears throat> yes, I, I think it's it's. I think it's clearly supply constraints. Uh, it's lack of availability of labor. Uh, it's lack of, of inputs. It's the, the lack of containers. We're not moving as much cargo via air. We need them versus containers. We know what's happened on shipping prices there. I just think the, the cost of getting goods where they're needed globally has has risen. So I, I think it's more than base effects. Presumably, or we expect <clears throat> it will diminish over the course of the year if the composition of activity shifts back in the direction of services. But in the meantime, uh, I, I think it's going to be with us for at least the first half of this year. Getting increasingly complex to get a read on this. Michael, it's great to catch you yeah. up, sir. Thank you. Michael Gapen of Barclays. Right now, the conversation of the day in a pandemic. Lauren Sauer with John Hopkins. I know Lisa and John got a bunch of questions. We welcome all of you across this nation on radio and television. Lauren Sauer, estimate for us the amount of your public that doesn't want to get the vaccine. Is it inconsequential? Is it tangible? I think it's definitely tangible. Um, we're rolling out to healthcare workers and elderly and vulnerable populations right now. You know, I think around a tenth of the population, maybe even less, has been vaccinated so far. Um, but what we know is that we're already seeing hesitancy from these uh, vulnerable, marginalized populations, and that's within our healthcare cohorts. And more broadly, as we're starting to roll out vaccine education campaigns and access campaigns. And so we don't have great numbers on the percent of the population saying no, because there's so many people who are willing to get it right now just because they want life to go back to normal and they're not scared of the vaccine or they're not hesitant to get it. But as soon as we get to the point where the where there's a significant amount of supply increase and we've gone through our frontline healthcare workers, we've gone through our um, elderly populations that have been able to get it through things like long-term care facilities, a lot of us think that we're going to see a sort of a cliff where there's this drop-off of people who are willing to get it and we're going to just be sitting on supply. Lauren, as you talk, it just strikes me that this process has been really messy. I mean, we're dealing with both the education campaigns in addition to trying to figure out the rollout campaigns because it's changing in real time with the CDC recommending possibly delaying the second shot now to get uh, the first shot in as many people's arms, to John's point, following the UK model. Lauren, is this a mess? Is there a plan? Do you think that we're moving ahead as expeditiously, expeditiously and as organizedly as possible? I will get my words out. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, I think there's, there's a plan being built, right? But it's being built, you know, as it's going, and, and that's really problematic for something like this, where you potentially have multiple vaccines with multiple different uh, distribution strategies, multiple different cold chain processes, and multiple different dosing approaches. And so how this has been rolled out has been left to local planners, and those are the same people who have had to plan testing campaigns, who have had to plan uh, PPE access projects, who have had to 
do all of the case counting in their region, and, and there's just not enough local resources to do that. The national strategy is being fixed, um, and by fixed I mean built, I think, because we didn't have a strong national strategy for vaccine rollout. It's been incredibly impressive how fast we've gotten to vaccine, but that is just one piece of the picture, you know, the actual product. And then all of these other pieces, I think, have been neglected while all of the focus was on getting vaccine um, that actually works. And so now it's time to really focus on um, a strategy that takes all of the responsibility out of the local um, health departments and local health systems' hands so that they can go back to to providing strong patient care and planning for all of the other day-to-day emergencies that they have. In the meantime, President Biden last night at a town hall meeting said that he expected things to be back to normal by Christmas uh, next year. What's the earliest that you see as plausible? I think that the first thing we have to do is readjust our um, our sense of what back to normal looks like. I mean, this is a virus that's going to be with us for a long time. Uh, we're not going to get rid of it. We are going to manage it. So, probably the same way we manage flu, but um, there are some distinct differences. And so as vaccine rolls out and more people get it, and we do focus on these education campaigns, we're still going to have to maintain our masking strategies, maintain our social distance strategies, probably well into the new year, I would say, and, and possibly more if we don't spend a lot of time talking to these communities who are hesitant about vaccine right now. Lauren, we keep hearing from several sources, including yourself just then, that the national strategy to roll out this vaccine needed to be fixed. Just looking at the numbers right now, the average daily rate of 1.67 million is good and better compared to where it was when Joe Biden took the presidency and walked into the White House. But it was approaching 1 million then. What was wrong with the strategy then and how has he fixed it? What's he changed? I think there's a couple of things that are happening. I think the um, more vaccines are coming online. Uh, people are getting messaging from their highest level public health leaders, which is absolutely critical. We were in a um, sort of trusted messenger gap, and, and that is a problem when people want information. It's okay to say what we know has changed. It's okay to say we have more information than we did a week ago, but fundamentally, if you're not hearing from a consistent, trusted voice, um, you can't build any of these strategies to, to sort of fix what's happening in this pandemic. Lauren, we appreciate your time and thank you for joining us. Lauren Sather of Johns Hopkins on the more coherent message in the last month or so around the vaccine rollout. Charles Cantor, Newberger Berman, long short fund senior portfolio manager. Charles, let's just start here on treasuries. Yields pushing higher, and I think everyone in the equity market asking the same question. When does it start to bite? Not 125, 130. When does it start to bite? How do you frame that for clients? For you yourself, investing, Charles, what's your view? Thanks. Good morning, Jonathan and Tom. Look, I think at the core of it, higher yields are predicting faster growth. And, um, and a little inflation, a little pricing power generally is good for equities. I think the speed of the move matters as much as where rates ultimately settle out. Um, for the last 20 decades, we've lived in a world where rates went in one direction, and that was from, from the top left to the bottom right. I think, look, two, two and a half, two and three quarters becomes somewhat problematic, but to me, that feels like a really long way away. I look, Charles. 
where we are, and I see a great adjustment in what corporations will do. You are expert at the dynamics of corporations. What are they doing right now to shape up their income statements, to shape up the need for revenue? Are they activist corporations, or are they gliding into the rest of 2021? Look, I think corporations are, are feeling fantastic, having stared into the abyss and worried about the survivability of their businesses and the health of their employees and, 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 and their supply chains. I think they, they've survived this, this rogue wave that, that, that almost wiped them out and, and now feel um, emboldened and confident to, to, to invest, both inside their, in their businesses in terms of people and technology and, and, and new products and, and services. And I think they're thinking a lot strategically as well about how do they take advantage of this dramatic rise in, in, in their stock prices. On top of that, many of them um, have shored up their balance sheets by taking advantage of, of incredibly low um, yields. Um, as Jonathan mentioned earlier, the, the yield on high yield, for example, doesn't start with a five handle anymore. So there's been shoring up of balance sheets, lots of confidence, um, and many, I think, are, are thinking through uh, at what pace they start bringing folks back to the office. And this definitely has been behind some of the moves that we've seen in equity prices. And certainly uh, it's been helped by a very accommodative Federal Reserve. Is short selling dead in this environment? No, I don't think short selling is dead at all. I think we're finally in an environment where security selection, stock picking and risk management matters again. And that played out across all of 2020 and continues to play out in, in, in 2021. Yes, there was a moment in, in January where bad companies went down and, and sorry, bad companies went up and, um, and good companies went down as everyone tried to bring down gross exposures by covering heavily shorted stocks and, and funding those, those, those purchases by selling down really good companies. But that seems to have worked its way through the system now. Um, short selling is, is, is a massive opportunity to, 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 to create value and by understanding where a company is positioned um, within its sector, uh, within its balance sheet, within its customers, within the global supply chain has never mattered more. And, and, and the shorting opportunity um, is as large today as I've seen it in my career. How nervous do you feel about being short? How comfortable are you, Charles? Surely over the last three months, you feel a little bit more nervous putting that trade on. Look, it's all about how you position the shorts, um, and it's all about understanding where, where others are with, within regard to, 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 to betting against betting against a company. Um, we manage our, our short positions very cautiously. We're fully aware of, of, of levels of short interest, but we're not betting that a, that, a, that a company goes away, and we're not betting our business that that company goes away. And when you com combine those two things, I think you see pretty well at night. The shorting opportunity is the biggest in my career. I mean, Charles, you have got to put some numbers on that. Where? In energy, we've seen a gain of almost 20% year to date. You've seen a similar move in small caps on a Russell as well. Where are you seeing these massive opportunities? Look, we see a market that continues to be very bifurcated between value and growth and, and, and different sectors and how companies are positioned. <clears throat> Our sense is those companies that... that that are still behind in terms of, of digitizing their business, taking their businesses to the cloud, engaging in their customers in, in a very different way, um, um, are going to find it very difficult. There are a bunch of companies out there 
whose stories are so fanciful they can't be validated nor refuted. And and those are the companies that that I prefer not to mention, but those are the companies mm-hmm. where over time um, truth will get revealed. And if you can manage those positions um, within cautiously and 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 and, and small. Um, I think at, at some point you get paid. Mm. Charles Cantor, give a lesson to all of Global Wall Street watching this morning. How much short interest is too much short interest? I mean, GameStop was out well over 100%. You got to be nuts to go against that. Do you have a limit in your head where you say if it's 30% short interest, that the 30% of the shares out, I'm betting against it, they're, they're going to go down. Is that too much? Do you have a number? I think you've got to think about short interest and position sizing together. So the larger the short interest, the smaller the position should be for us within the context right. of what, what is reasonable. I think once you get north of 20% um, um, short, beware. But that doesn't mean you don't, you don't short that company. But, but once you get north of 20%, I think as a rule of thumb, um, you, want to, you want to start thinking critically about how crowded you are. But then you want to think about your position within the context of, 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 of the entire short interest. How much of the short interest is you versus someone else? I mean, part of the challenge is, um, you know, so many folks are, are, are on the same tra- side of the trade at the same time, and then they all do the same thing at exactly the same time. I always found it curious that the retail investor got accused of groupthink, but the institutional short seller was also part of the group thing because they were all in it at the same time and then all do exactly the same thing to manage down their gross exposures at the same time, which creates this enormous opportunity to, 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 to make money. Charles, I can't believe you run down the clock without actually telling us where to find these shorts. You said you didn't want to comment. Come he said on. the companies are so fanciful, the stories. You couldn't be confirmed or denied. just give us a description? Okay. Does it rhyme with Wesla? <laughs> Charles, is <laughs> Tesla on your list? Tesla, it may not, but it's, it's where the businesses are pursuing a total addressable mar- market that seems massive. Valuations are fanciful. Revenue doesn't seem to be very great today, but enormous five years from now. There are a lot of those businesses out there. And that piece of the market, candidly, feels very 1999. I mean, I the rest of the market doesn't feel 99 at all. We need a private conversation, Charles. Just <laughs> catch up. Charles Katzer, Newberger Berman, Long Short <laughs> Senior Portfolio Manager. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.